to this podcast for St. Peter's Church Greenhill as we seek to become loving, witnessing and growing people. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. The, um, we're going to look together at this short passage around about uh, eight or nine verses uh, that's set, as, as you've heard, in, in the temple in Jerusalem. But we're in John's Gospel. And, and John, John's Gospel is unlike the other three Gospels, uh, unlike Matthew, for instance, in that it's more selective. Um, and it selects bits of experience of Jesus from the memory of the disciples and concentrates upon selected events. It doesn't, for instance, as Matthew does, progressively chart Jesus' passage from his ministry in Galilee as he makes his way and progresses down to, to Jerusalem. It selects bits, such as the encounter in Samaria. And a lot of it is set as this passage is, actually in Jerusalem. And a lot of those encounters in Jerusalem are around the feast times. And this was the feast of, of dedication. So what on earth is this feast of dedication? It's quite important, really, to an understanding of the passage. Um, it, was, it was celebrating an event that had happened almost 200 years before, um, back in BC 165. And it was a time <coughs> when the Jews... <coughs> pardon me, when the Jews were in a, a lot of trouble. They were occupied then not by the Romans, but by the Greeks, and particularly one uh, Greek king at the time, Antiochus IV. And what Antiochus IV was attempting to do, you could understand why he was trying to do this. There were many disparate religions around at the time of which Judaism was one. He was trying to encourage all the people in that Palestine area to worship Greek gods, and particularly one god, and that was Zeus, who was, if you like, the, the chief god in, in Greek mythology. And he felt that that would unify the area and bring peace to the area. He was also, legend has it, a little bit crazy, uh, which probably didn't help. Um, but what he did was he progressively made it more difficult for the Jews, and particularly in temple worship. So he tried to he banned the circumcision. He tried to force uh, the Jews to worship Greek gods, and he defiled the temple. It's alleged he set up a pig on the altar in the temple. And interestingly, on December the 25th, our Christmas day, around about 165 BC, he set up um, uh, an image of Zeus on the altar in the temple. And he attempted to force the Jews to worship <clears throat> the god Zeus. Of course, it was the final straw, really, for, for the Jews. And particularly for one family. Um, and these were the Maccabees family, uh, headed then by his father, Matthias, and, and sons. And they whipped up uh, a revolt. And they were successful, and they managed to um, expel uh, Antiochus IV and the Greek rulers from that area. And of course, what they did um, around about a year later was to, the first act was to rededicate the temple. But it, they had defiled all the oil 
in, in the temple. They defiled it actually with bits of pig. Um, so they couldn't use the, use the oil. And it was important that they used the oil because there was a flame, God's flame in the, the temple that had to be kept burning day and night. So they went ahead and dedicated the temple, but they only had one vial of oil. There's a lot of oil in, the, in scripture, isn't there? But they had one vial of, uns, of, of sealed oil that they knew had not been defiled. The tricky thing was they could make new oil by pressing it and refining it, but to get it ready for use took a week, took seven days. And they had one day's worth of oil. So they lit it boldly and in faith, and God kept it burning for eight days until eventually their oil was ready. And it was a miracle. And that, was, that gave rise to uh, the Feast of Dedication. And how many times have we had similar experiences to that in our lives? Perhaps not quite as dramatic, but I remember talking to a missionary, and, and he said that um, he was a missionary in the Middle East in, in wartime, and they had uh, no food. And uh, he prayed to God, and remarkably, someone began to leave food by his doorstep every day, every single day, there would be a package there. When eventually his funding was restored and he could go back and buy food, it stopped. So it kept going just until that time and then started. I could regale you with many other stories, uh, similar stories, where God makes just enough provision. And then when normal services review, resumed, it stops. Anyway, that was the story of the dedication. That, that was where the Feast of the Dedication came from. So what the Jews then did to celebrate that is during uh, the Feast of Dedication, also known as the Feast of Lights, and in North America it's called Hanukkah, um, the Jews still to this day light eight lights. They put it this, in this big menorah, and put it in their window. And they start at the left-hand side and they light these eight lights. And they celebrate uh, for eight days. And it's become actually quite a big feast, in, particularly in, uh, in, in North America, because when Jews emigrated to America, it, they wanted something for their families and their children around Christmas time. And conveniently... Hanukkah falls around about that time. The Jews operate on a lunar calendar for their feast, so it moves a little bit. But for instance, this year, 2022, it's an eight-day feast, and it begins on December the 18th, and it runs through to December the 26th. So it takes them beautifully over that celebratory Christmas period. And of course, what the Jews can do is to celebrate. They play games, typically with the family. It's a great celebration. They eat uh, food with a lot of oil in it particularly. So they have two particular dishes, and one of them is jelly donuts, and the other one is fried potato pancakes. And they play games with the children, and they can give gifts, and it's a, it's a joyous family festival, rather like our Christmas. So you can imagine 
that that's, that's become quite popular. So that's the background to the Feast of Dedication. That was, would have been what Jesus was experiencing at the time. But there was another background to this as well, of course. The, the, the whole point of the Feast of Dedication was that the Jews had risen up, led by the Maccabees family, and by force they'd expelled the Greeks. And God had blessed them, and they'd rededicated their temple and got their lives as, as a Jewish nation back on track. Move on a couple of hundred years to the time, more or less exactly 200 years, to the time when Jesus is in this Solomon's portico in the temple. And it's a similarly turbulent time in Jewish history. This time they're occupied not by the Greeks, but by the Romans. And they'd previously been ruled by Herod, not Herod Antipas, the one that was involved in the trial of Jesus, but his dad, his father, Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had been a client king uh, of, of the Romans and, uh, and been extremely successful. And he had let, he'd done a lot of building work. That's part of the reason he was called Herod the Great. And he'd extended the second temple and made it into the marvelous structure that it was that people used to comment on as they walked past. And you'll see that in the scripture. Herod died more or less two years after Jesus was born, about 6 AD. And when he died, all the work stopped. There was a lot of unemployment. There was a huge amount of pressure financially in the area, and people were beginning to talk about the need to have a leader that would overthrow the Romans. It was occupied. The Romans were levying quite heavy taxes, using collaborators amongst the Jewish community to do that. The people were under a lot of pressure financially, and there was a lot of civil unrest. And people were talking about needing a leader, someone who would come and restore the fortune of the Jewish nation and get rid of these Roman occupiers and do so by force, exactly like uh, the Maccabees did, more or less exactly 200 years uh, before that. They were looking potentially for a messiah. But the messiah wouldn't be what we think of as a messiah. The messiah to them would have a spiritual element, but there would also be a military leader, what's described as a Davidic messiah, somebody like King David, who would take up arms and get rid of, uh, get rid of the Romans. And so it's against that background <coughs> that... Um, when Jesus is walking during the Feast of Dedication, celebrating the uprising 200 years ago, in a time of political ferment, and he's walking in the portico of Solomon, which is actually, interestingly, where they used to make decisions. That bit of the temple was where uh, decisions would be made. They came to Jesus and said, make a decision. Tell us plainly, are you that person? Are you the Messiah? We need to know. You know why we need to know. Society's in a mess. There's unemployment. People are hungry. We need to restore our traditions. Are you the person that will do that? Um, not surprisingly, Jesus did not answer them directly because that would have been a bundle of trouble. If he'd said no, 
I'm not that person that's going to lead a revolt against the Romans, then they would have said, look, he's just, he's admitted, he's not God's man for the moment. If he'd said yes, they would have been delighted to take up arms and follow him. Neither of those were what Jesus came to do. So what does he do? Well, actually, he gives pretty much the same answer to the question as he gave to John's followers when John sent, remember John the Baptist sent uh, his followers to say, Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And what he said to John's uh, followers, go back and tell John, the blind can see, the lame can walk. He said, look at the miracles that I'm doing and make up your own mind. He said the same thing here. He said, look at the miracles that I've done. He didn't stop there. He went a little bit further than he went with, with John. And he said, I've told you so. I've told you. I'm not going to tell you I'm a political leader, but I've told you I and the Father are one. I cannot be plainer than this. It's not as you understand it, but I am telling you, I and the Father are one. And if you don't believe my words and think, well, maybe I'm a madman or even a bad person, then look at the miracles that have happened and put two and two together and decide for yourselves. But you will find it difficult to do that unless my Father opens your eyes. Because I've told you that the only way that you can come to the Father is through me because I am the good shepherd. So that's what he said to them. Um, we know that, but that's the next story, I suspect. We know that they didn't react well. What does it have to say to us? A couple of things. One of them in relation to our witness to others. We are called, as Jesus did, to testify to miracles that have happened in our lives. I'm going to ask people, Shona very helpfully paved the way for this at the start, but I'm going to ask people at the end of this, if you remember a time when God has acted miraculously in your life, come to the front and tell us briefly about that. There's a reason for doing this, but prepare that in your mind. Think back. Is there a time when God has acted miraculous, miraculously, if I can say it, in my life? And I'm going to tell people about that. We're called to do that. <clears throat> and we're called to do that for a reason, because it builds our faith. But as you tell people about that, you're not responsible, as Jesus emphasizes here, you're not responsible for their response. So you don't have to convert them. You don't have to go out and win converts. It's not really what we're called to do. What we're called to do is to testify to what God's done in our lives. And then, yes, if people respond, make disciples of those who do. But we cannot be responsible for changing another man or woman's heart. Only God can do that. What we can do 
is to testify to what God has done in our lives. And of course, that's what Jesus did. So we don't need to be embarrassed about it. We simply need to say what's happened. It, I think, as I said to you before, last, uh, lastly, I haven't been able to get to many conferences during COVID, but in the past I did. Almost always over dinner, there would be some kind of general talk after people have had a couple of glasses of wine and a nice meal. And very frequently, people would surprisingly say, you're a Christian, Jim. Tell us all about this. And what I would try to avoid is telling them what they should believe, what rules they should follow, what behavior they should adopt, and opt instead from simply saying, what has happened to me? And I would sometimes add, I could completely understand if you found this difficult to believe, but I can only tell you what my experience has been. Make of it what you will. And God often will give us the opportunity to do similar things. And when he does, we can do it without embarrassment. Because when we're not responsible for how people act, we can only tell, us, uh, tell them as clearly as we can uh, what, that mean, what that meant for us. That's relatively easy with strangers. It's more difficult with our family um, or friends because we want them to believe and we've got to pull back a little bit and perhaps resist that temptation to try and twist their arm up their back uh, to believe what we believe, to do what we would do. Leave that in God's hands and simply testify towards God's done. But there is a second, uh, a second reason that Jesus would speak to us in this way. And the Jews at the time were struggling with real difficulties in their lives. Um, society was in a mess, they were oppressed, they were occupied. It would not have been a particularly pleasant time, as it isn't for many in Ukraine at the minute, um, and as it isn't uh, for many people of limited means, even in our country today. And we might not be able to see God meeting our needs. And that was at the bottom of the Jews' questions to Jesus. Are you the one that's going to meet, get God to meet our needs? We are fed up with this. We cannot put up with this any longer. And many of us are in a similar situation in our own lives. So what does God call us to do with the frustrations in our lives, the difficulties that we face that appear intractable and difficult? Well, it's the same answer. He says, the miracles I do speak in my name. And while we might not be able to see God meeting our needs immediately today, as the Jews couldn't in the portico of Solomon on uh, Hanukkah back in AD 30-ish, God would call us to remember the times when he has and place our faith in that to recognize that it's only through God's initiative that things are going to change in your character and in your circumstances. What happens if we don't? Well, what happens if we don't is what happened to the Jews who didn't. Their disappointment and frustration, prolonged disappointment and frustration, waiting for this Messiah who was not, in their view, coming, led to anger, 
and their anger led to sin. And they eventually crucified him, even though he was the Messiah and he was the Son of God. And that's the human condition. If we're having a miserable time, and I suspect some people are having a miserable time, not all the time, but sometimes, and we don't trust God, we don't place our faith in what God has done, our frustration and disappointment will turn to anger, and our anger will lead us into sin. If, on the other hand, we place our faith in God, it acts as a channel for God to change us and hopefully change our circumstances. And that's why Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, said, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's commit ourselves to that. Amen.